I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Cube is very dangerous. Cube is the rapper Ice Cube. The woman speaking is Brittany Cooper, a professor of gender studies and Africana studies at Rutgers University. I can't even begin to characterize what Cooper has to say about Ice Cube, his contract with Black America, President Trump's appeals to Black men, and the role of Black women in the 2020 election. We get into it all, and she doesn't hold back. Why should she? Cooper's 2018 book, Eloquent Rage, A Feminist Discovers Her Superpower, put her on the map, and you're about to find out why right now. Brittany Cooper, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you're here today because of a couple of tweets you sent out recently, jumping in on the whole Black vote, President Trump, and Ice Cube. And you sent this tweet, Black men are breaking my heart with this caping for Cube Cum Trump. Apparently, y'all want to be to 2020 what white women were to 2016. And this is why to be black and woman is to have to seriously consider daily what it means to get too close to either group, traitorous MFs. So you have much more space than 280 characters. What are you talking about here? Yeah, so Ice Cube this week came out in support of this plan, the contract with Black America, and this platinum plan that he consulted with the Trump administration on that is supposedly about spurring investment in Black communities. And there are two problems with that. The first is that we know, if we've been paying any attention to the Trump administration, that he is absolutely committed to a kind of terrorizing of Black communities, everything from tear-gassing protesters to telling the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by to intimidating African-American voters at the polls, to engaging in rampant campaigns of voter suppression, to refusing to condemn white supremacists wholesale. So it's absolutely unconscionable that any Black person would think it were reasonable to come to the table to engage with a man who is so virulently and explicitly racist in the ways that this president has been. But the second part of this is that then Cube, who began his career with NWA in the 1980s, a group that is most well known for its song, F the Police, now, you know, sort of being in bed with Trump in a moment where one of the things that's happening as we're looking at voter turnout and voter behavior is that young Black men are underperforming in terms of their willingness to vote for the Democratic ticket and overperforming their past performance in terms of the Republican ticket, which is to say that currently Black men are polling at somewhere between 17 and 18 percent for Donald Trump. And that's a historically high number. We've not seen that number in the modern Republican Party of Black support, particularly from Black men. And so when Cube comes out and says, the Trump administration is the group that is responsive to Black folks' concerns, then it creates this context for Black men to continue to jump ship. And what we know if we think structurally is that Black folks typically do better under Democratic administrations than Republican administrations. Cube is undercutting all of that. And everybody is then relying on Black women voters to come to the polls and pull the Democratic Party over the line. But our brothers, even if they don't vote totally at the same levels as us, have to vote at a very high level for the Democrats to have any chance of winning. 
Cube is undercutting that and he's doing it in such a way that like white women did in 2016 when there was a white woman at the top of the ticket and they would not vote for her. These white women said, we're going to throw our lot in with Mr. Pussy Grabber himself who has cheated on his wife and we know that he has. He won't release his taxes and he's blatantly racist and we're going to throw our lot in with protecting the racial prerogatives of white men than thinking about what it might mean to have a woman in the presidency who looks like us and share some things in common with us. And so I said that Q would be to 2020 what these white women were to 2016, which is that the groups that you would think would be in solidarity with black women, other groups of women, other groups of black people are making political choices that actually are going to undermine this kind of clear political vision that black women have towards a kind of progressive or left-leaning candidate winning, winning the presidency. So I want to talk about black women more fully, but I have to ask you, because I bet there are some people who are listening to you and thinking, wait a minute, Donald Trump is getting close to 20%, like north of 15% support among African-American men, given the indictment that you started out your answer with. What is the appeal of Donald Trump to black men? This is critically important. So what polling suggests is that Black men keep saying that they don't see any difference between Biden or Trump and that they don't think that Biden will make race relations better. And so when they were asked whether or not they think that Biden will improve race relations, they answered at something like only at 20 or 21 percent confidence that race relations would be better under a Biden administration. So that is what the ostensible argument is, that there's no distinction, right? between these candidates and that they're tired of the Democratic Party taking them for granted. But really what this is about, in my estimation as a feminist scholar who thinks about these kinds of concerns around gender, is that this is Black men being actually enamored with the kind of masculinity that Trump performs. Look, there are plenty of hip-hop songs that have celebrated Donald Trump for the better part of 30 years because he's literally the dude in the club that's making it rain. He has lots of ladies. He cheats on his wife. He's on Twitter, right? This is a man who aspires to mediocrity in every part of his life, and yet it does not keep him from rising to the top, from getting access to the American presidency. And there is a way that Black men have been made to believe that because white supremacy has worked on them primarily by restricting their access to all the spoils of manhood, to the money, to the political power, to even to the sort of more, I guess, noble power protecting their women, for a lot of Black men, their racial freedom aspiration is to just be equal with white men, which is to say they want to be patriarchs or male dominant in the way that white men are. And so Donald Trump presents a path to that because he's really unintelligent. He's brute in the way that he says things. And we sort of know these brothers in our community. They don't read. They show up to the meeting. They want to run everything, but they're clearly not the tightest person in the room. They're not the most rigorous. It's a version of masculinity that he portrays and these black men think that they can get on board with it. And it's also rooted in the idea that it's really deeply disdainful of women. He sees women as objects and ornaments and his entire posture is about, I have a lot of money, so I'm smart. And look at all these women that I've had who are dope. And in a hip hop ethos, that appeals to folks, which is why you see some of his most prominent supporters being folks like Kanye West and Ice Cube. 
And I think that's what brothers are responding to. And I think the people who are doing this thing with them in our community where they're saying, well, you know, young black men and, and black men more generally are so disaffected with this system because it is racist. And we really need to think about, it. do people not think that black women know the system is racist? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, we, do, we live in the same house with these people. We go to the same churches. Our kids go to the same schools. You know, we're the folks who are putting money on the books of these dudes who are incarcerated, right? We literally live in community with these men. And yet somehow they think that they have a deeper understanding of racism than we have. And that disconnect between us is a thing I was trying to think about. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So Ice Cube... In one of his videos, he says, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, we've been taken advantage of by everybody. Democrats keep making these promises and we're still at the bottom. And in one part, he talks about how, well, people say, oh, if we have four more years of Donald Trump, like we won't survive. And he says, well, black people can survive anything. And when I heard that, I'm like, okay, on one hand, I see what you're saying, Ice Cube, in terms of the survival of the people. But on the other hand, dude, are your eyes not open to how much worse things could get for America? And if things get bad for America, they get exponentially worse for us. Oh my goodness, Jonathan, thank you for these questions there. Yes, because that drives to the heart of it. Let me tell you something that irritates me to no end in this moment of political discourse. Both parties have taken Black people for granted. Republicans have never even tried. Democrats just assume we're going to step and fall in line. So they have done those things. They are guilty of that. But the idea that there's no appreciable difference between these groups, Trump who is a fascist, Trump who will not concede to a peaceful transfer of power, Trump who is literally telling people to go to the polls and intimidate black voters simply for exercising their right to vote. Trump who will lock children up in cages. Trump who will have undocumented women, many of whom are black women, being subject to forced sterilization in, in Georgia prisons and detention camps. That's not anything that we've seen under a liberal democratic administration on these shores, period. And so one has to ask oneself, even if you think both groups are bad, given our own history and given, you know, Q produced a group, his, you know, he introduced a group on his first solo album called A Lynch Mob. And as I was watching him side with Trump, I was like, you're siding with the lynch mob, the real one, not your rap group, right? You're siding with the actual people who would lynch 
black men if they just got the opportunity these are the kind of dudes who will make it rain with you in the strip club and then let you make a demand of them they will string you up to a tree if they thought they could get away with it why can't black men see that i don't understand the level of anger that says that because you recognize the sort of anodyne nature of white liberalism that it doesn't pack the kind of progressive punch that we want that you're then gonna side with the people who literally are over here we have an ammunition shortage in this country because these folks are stockpiling guns so hard for a race war that they want to have and those are the people that you want to be in league with because somehow they're on our side when trump very specifically goes and does rallies and says back in the day we would have taken this disruptor at the rally out back you know and we know what would have happened to him so it just it boggles the mind because <laughs> our people are falling for that narrative the insidiousness of that narrative is that then there's no reason to vote because nothing changes but the minute that trump if he gets reelected and we lose the aca we lose reproductive access we lose the semblance potentially of having another democratic election in our lifetime because this is a man that won't concede a peaceful transfer of power and that is actively actually going around eroding the right of all people to vote and so i'm like what are these dudes like the only thing that would make you do that is an aspiration to that kind of power and dominance cube is very dangerous and finally let me say this this is a man ice cube who four years ago tweeted i will never endorse donald trump two years ago tweeted that the man should be locked up but now today because he caught like it's that thing jonathan cube got out here and showed his ass because the Trump administration dared to call him back. That's all about ego. The Biden administration didn't call you back, even though Simone Sanders did respond to him when he initially put out this claim. They didn't call you back because you're not no activist or organizer in the community. You're an entertainer, Cube, an entertainer. And so they're talking to the people who are on the ground working with folks to corral concerns. And the only thing that I've ever seen in my history of studying activism and my participation in activism that will make black men skip over the folks who are on the ground doing the work is the idea that they are the ones who get the phone call and the mic. It is super seductive to all of them. Whew. Now y'all see why I needed to have Brittany Cooper on to talk this out and to talk this through. Before I move on to black women, what's been the reaction of black men to what you said on Twitter and what you say now? Because I'm sure this is not the first time you've said what you said. Look, this conversation is the hardest conversation to have in black communities. That moment when black women call black men out and say, you need to do better. So there've been a couple of responses. A lot of brothers, particularly the brothers who don't want to vote for Biden and who are feeling every type of way about it, were quite vicious. They have trolled me. They have tried to switch this around and say that basically the rest of us are the sheep of the Democratic Party, that we're shills for a kind of liberal agenda. Uh, apparently, we're being paid money from the Democratic Party to collude against Black men against the system. And I just want to say to them, 1975 called, and she wants her Black <laughs> national politics back. That's, that's not what's happening here. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, what are we talking about? But also, some brothers have said, look, like, I'm actually really concerned about this. Because the thing that I tried to make very clear, I'm not coming for all brothers. Most brothers who vote in the aggregate vote with Black communities more generally. They vote for the Democratic ticket. The issue here
here was I didn't come after these Trump dudes because I just wanted to come after black men. I came after them because the increasing levels of support, if these brothers go out in any level of numbers to vote, actually can swing the tenor of this election. So it's dangerous. So I was like, I'm not coming after the brothers who are, even if they're having to hold their noses to do it, are going to show up to the polls and vote and are going to vote Biden because he's the only other viable candidate as an option that we have. But let me say this thing though. But I did hear, you know, in my text messages and the group chat and all that, there's some brothers that I think should know better felt some type of way and said that I was attacking black men more generally. And there was this move by even a couple of like dudes who are professors and who study this kind of work to come and defend brothers. And the thing that I want to say to them is A, what is that thing where you can't see the distinction, right? That I'm talking to a particular group of black men, I'm not talking to all of you, but B, if you do see that distinction, what is the thing that makes you then say, well, we need to try to understand these brothers who want to vote for Trump? Because the last time I heard that argument was all of the post-mortem of the 2016 election when people wanted to talk about white liberals wrote op-eds telling us that we really needed to understand the disaffected white working class and their vote for Trump. And Black people were deeply offended by those claims. And now what we are being told is that we need to understand why brothers who have been pushed out of the system want to support the dude who plans to push them out of the system more. I have no patience for it. And I also need brothers to do their emotional work that when Black women are asking you to evaluate your own political stances, it's never in the aggregate a prelude to us throwing Black men under the bus. We are out here risking our lives in a pandemic to vote and to turn out votes precisely because we know how devastating conservative politics is for Black communities. Both when those politics come from liberals who practice fiscal conservatism like the Clinton administration did, but also particularly when it comes from the GOP. We are voting in solidarity with trying to create better conditions for our brothers, not trying to undercut them. And what these brothers want is for us to tell them that the bullshit that they sometimes engage in, it smells like roses and that it's fine for them to do it. And meanwhile, we're all out here fighting for our very lives. And let me say this last thing. Brothers do this radical performance about how they're woker than everybody else. And then they depend on sisters to go out to the polls and make sure that the lights stay on. We're the ones who make sure your babies have somewhere to go to school, make sure that the bills get paid, make sure that tax refund checks show up every spring and summer. And you use that little bit of space that we give you in this onslaught of white supremacy to act like you're woker than thou. That is so deeply offensive. Sisters see the whole picture. We work up close to white folks. We understand the game. But we also know that part of what our job is, is you play the hand you are dealt, and then you try to work your way to a better hand, right? And some of this is about the hand you are dealt, but some of this is about the art of how you play the game. And I'm tired of people thinking that Black women ain't got no game. Of course we do. And if I can't say it for sisters, I can say it for me. I got a mean hand of spades all day, every day. <laughs> well, let's talk about black women, because you just said something a moment ago that reminded me of something that Stacey Abrams said when I interviewed her at the Kennedy Library last December, where she was talking about black women and how black women really see everything. And she had this line in there where she's talking about, you know, we are the canaries in the coal mine. We've built nests 
in the coal mine. And so if we're telling you something is wrong, something is up, something needs to be changed, you better listen to us. And so now, black women, they have been saying through the primary process, Joe Biden's the one, and been saying through the general election, Joe Biden's the one. Talk about from your vantage point, how seriously is the voice of the black woman being taken in the 2020 election? Look, I think that there has been a multi-year push from black women in the Democratic Party to get access to the leadership of that party. So after 2016, black women wrote a letter to Tom Perez and they said, hey, you need to begin to promote black women within the ranks of the party. You need to support black women's campaigns and you need to be thinking long-term about how you're gonna get black women to the highest levels of leadership in this country because we literally are the reason that the Democratic Party is even ever at the table because of how we vote. And so we saw that begin to take place in 2018 with the kind of races that the Democratic Party supported. And then there was an all out push in the back channels from black women, political operatives and thinkers and journalists and writers to tell to force Biden's hand in terms of picking a black woman VP. When you see the Kamala Harris pick, do not mistake that for Joe Biden's largesse. He's certainly smart, but black women operatives were working the hell out of the situation to make the case that a black woman needed to be at the top of the ticket and that Kamala was the best choice for representing Black interests. So the Democratic Party is taking us seriously. And now what you have, which is the thing that's infuriating, is a situation in Black communities where you have lots of young people. And look, I teach young people. I march in the streets with young people. I really do respect them. We don't have a revolution without 18-year-olds and 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds who are bringing energy. So I am not disrespecting, but there is a way that folks who have grown up in a world where Barack Obama is the first president you remember or the first president that you voted for, where it has skewed one sense of the possible in the American electorate. And I'm not trying to curtail our sense of the possible, but I'm trying to say right now, Obama is the outlier. He's not the rule, right? And so this disillusionment with the way in which progress has not been linear, when our history teaches us that after epic moments of Black progress, there is always epic white backlash. Our folks are dealing with such whiplash from it that they are ready to tear down and destroy everything. And that is why you see Black women voters, particularly voters over 35, who have this very calm steadiness, like, look, don't lose it. You know, you get the sense of the black mother or the black woman who just says, now, pull it together, turn your head the right way, and let's keep going, right? And that sensibility is hard, but it is the reason black people have made it. And we've got to stop understanding that as parochial or retrograde or as a lack of vision and understand that black women are like, this is how we understand this thing to work. But the reason we are still here is because in conditions that are literally infuriatingly designed for us not to win, hey, voter suppression, we gonna show up to the polls anyway. We're gonna be the Stacey Abrams of this anyway. I'm gonna stand on a stage on a day when the thing that I have built has been stolen from me and say, A, I will not concede, but I will acknowledge, and then I will build the infrastructure for the rest of our people to win. That is black women's political sensibility, and it is most deserving of respect. Because it's not this easy, superficial 
wokeness or progressivism. It is the kind of politics that recognizes what it actually takes to build a new world. And so much of that work of building the world we want to see is so deeply unglamorous because it's in the daily, like helping your children to love their blackness and talking crazy to the white teacher that don't want them to see it and fighting the courts because they want to suspend your black child for having a plastic toy gun in the house. It's the daily mundane work that black women have been primed and socialized to do that is why we have this sense like let me say this last thing i'm more to the left of biden so i wanted one of the more progressive flanking candidates but i know why black women across the country chose biden because that is who we thought white people would let us get away with <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean come yeah. on like it's not about what we what world we want to see we're like we understand who these white folks are we understand that the barack obama administration traumatized these white people in ways that they have yet to fully acknowledge or process and so what white people are demanding for america whether they're more liberal or more conservative they want a status quo that feels reasonable and familiar to them. And Joe Biden is the, on the liberal side of that familiar status quo. Black folks deeply get the psychology of white people. Black women get it, I would argue, more than anybody else because of all the decades and centuries we spent cleaning white folks' houses and raising their children. We get it. And so what we have said, you know, in the aggregate as voters is that the country ain't ready for that that what Trump proved is that these white people need a return to some kind of status quo that they can build more slowly from. And for the sake of our people, we're going to get on board with this and do it. And I think Black folks also finally said, and since Biden is the kind of white man who would serve as the number two to a Black man, who would help a Black man get over the line, then he's worthy of support from us. He'll do for our purposes and he'll also do for our other purpose, which is to pull a sister over the line, right? Like, it's not so... It's not complicated. Yeah, and it's not so pedestrian or basic or just rooted in notions of representation as people think. It seems to me that Black women have a really clear sense about how this game works and they trying to figure out how they can get the most things out of it. Brittany, man, this episode is coming out on a Tuesday, but it certainly feels like I'm in church on a Sunday. A lot of what you're saying is you're talking about the power of Black women and the power in their expressing their voice. It's the voice of Black women. And I want to get your thoughts on another controversy, this one involving a Black woman, Megan Three Stallion. You know, I remember watching Saturday Night Live and she's performing her thing. And then all of a sudden there's this Breonna Taylor protest right in the middle of her song. And I stopped everything I was doing and I thought, oh, my God, this is spectacular. I've never seen anything like it. She caught all kinds of hell. She wrote a piece in the New York Times. I would love to get your thoughts on this because I know you have thoughts on this. She writes... Many of us began to put too much value, us meaning black women, too much value to how we are seen by others. That's if we are seen at all. The issue is even more intense for black women who struggle against stereotypes and are seen as angry or threatening when we try to stand up for ourselves and our sisters. There's not much room for passionate advocacy if you are a black woman. Let me tell you something. I love, love, love Megan the Stallion. It's Megan the Stallion, T-H-E-E. <laughs> oh, oops, yes, I'm sorry, I put an R in there. Megan the Stallion. The Stallion, right? Her journey has been amazing to watch. Let me just give people a little context. 
a couple of months ago, right at the end of the summer, Meg's former partner, Tori Lanes, an R&B singer, shot her in the feet. Shot her in the feet. And when they got out of the car, even though she's bleeding, she's trying so hard to make sure that the cops don't arrest this black man who has committed this violent act against her, that she lies about what happens initially to the police. Doesn't tell them that he has shot her. That is often the condition that black women are in, that we are brutalized by our brothers. And then because we are so worried about what racism is going to do to them, we don't then, we don't then own our own need for help. She was lambasted when she didn't admit to what he did. And then when she finally did admit it, she was called a snitch. For most of the summer, the fact that the top women's rapper in the game right now was shot by her boyfriend barely made the news cycle at any large level. And yet what you have seen her do in the interim is pivot, heal, talk about the travesty of what has happened to Breonna Taylor, use her platform to represent that, and then to then come into the public and make a series of claims about how Black women are being treated, about why she unapologetically owns her sexuality. And to be clear, the controversy over Meg the Stallion is not about the fact that she has political opinions about Black women's lives. It is about the fact that she's unapologetic about her sexuality. Meg the Stallion is the champion of twerkers, she has knees that my 25-year-old self envies. She does not apologize for that. And one of the things that besets all women is the idea that we could be both sexual beings and intellectual or virtuous beings and be beings of worthy of protection. And so Meg presents a conundrum for the culture because she's demanding that we see her on all those terms, right? That we understand her and accept her as a person who is in control and in charge of her own sexuality unapologetically, but that we also understand her as someone educated and intellectual and politically engaged, and that we understand her as somebody who has a voice and that she's going to use that voice not to be the kind of woman in hip-hop who allows dudes to sort of continue in their misogyny unchecked, but rather that she's going to try to reframe that conversation and be a champion for women, all women right? Cardi B certainly has been political in this way, but Meg in some ways is just more articulate. And the other thing that I like about her op-ed in the New York Times is she rejects this competition that people have tried to set up between her, Cardi B, and Nicki Minaj. Mm -hmm. She calls for a really different ethic of engagement and basically says, look, this is the thing y'all do to women. Y'all say that there can only be one, but all of us are unique and beautiful and bring something to the table. I just, I think that she's worthy of being celebrated, but I also think that we've got to think about in the culture that part of the reason that she would defend a Breonna Taylor is, let me say too, because the day after Daniel Cameron refused to bring charges against the cops that killed Breonna Taylor, the guy who shot Meg the Stallion put out a 17 song album talking about how he didn't shoot her. That was like a free surprise Beyonce drop at midnight kind of album mm. of 17 tracks all about what he didn't do to Meg. So what you have is these two stories, one in which Breonna Taylor's boyfriend tries to stand up and defend her and can't do it and is in a devastating sense, not able to be that kind of brother that we all want that will stand with us in these harrowing moments. He chooses to answer our deep cultural woundedness in that moment about that by talking about basically his right to shoot his woman and not have any accountability for it. 
So the fact that this girl who is, I mean, she's a young woman, that she has experienced all of that, and that in this moment, what she is doing is calling us to a different kind of political sensibility about young women and just makes her incredibly significant, and I so deeply admire her. Your book is called Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. What was that superpower? My superpower is my rage, if you can't tell. The thing that I've learned over many years is that rather than letting white folks sort of discipline me through the accusation that I'm an angry Black woman, which is designed to rob us of feeling justified when terrible things happen and our right to be angry, recognizing that Yes, we have the right to be angry about the injustices that we face. And that just because we're angry doesn't mean that we have to be destructive, that we have to be disrespectful, that we have to sort of be a walking, you know, sort of ball of chaos, but rather that given that white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism are always going to induce black rage because of their inability to recognize black humanity, then what that means is that I'm always going to have this well of power to draw from to build the world I wanna build. So I'm not gonna leave my anger on the table. I'm not gonna try to make white people comfortable by not showing my anger. But what I am gonna try to do is make sure that that anger is the kind of clarifying rage that helps me to then say, well, how do we build the structures that don't keep reproducing this rage, right? So how do we educate in ways that don't produce this rage? How do we build social structures that support people in ways that don't reproduce this sense of rage and despair and sadness and all the things that are underneath it? And so this has been a journey about me getting comfortable with being angry and with my right to anger and not letting other people caricature and weaponize that anger against me and against other Black women. Because the thing is, you know, when you get real mad, like part of the thing I've told my friends is that I really have to stop tweeting before 9 a.m. <laughs> these tweets that you got earlier in the week about Q. But I, but the problem is that I, when I wake up that mad, I'm like, no, I'm really clear about what the problem. Like, you know, it feels like real clarity, right? And so, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, that's what that rage does for me. I feel like I do some of my best writing when I'm angry. And I just wanted people to recognize that you can do really great stuff in your anger. And we didn't have to buy into this narrative that all angry Black people are doing is making life difficult for people and burning everything down. That's simply not true. Let me end by asking you to reflect on something that you said um, a little bit earlier when you were talking about women. And there's one line you said jumped out at me where you're talking about how like black women worthy of protection. And I was reminded of, it was either a tweet or a Facebook post right after Kamala Harris, Senator Harris was chosen by Joe Biden to be his running mate. And someone made the observation about the power of seeing Senator Harris under Secret Service protection and what that meant because Black women are the least protected among us. And yet here is this Black woman who is now under Secret Service protection. What does that mean for you? Does it have that meaning for you? Yeah, look, I get symbolically why it wouldn't matter. We live in a world where no one ever thinks Black women and girls are worthy of being protected. And so we just hear endless stories about Black women being assaulted. You know, there's a whole meme culture dedicated to people stepping to Black girls the wrong way and then dudes standing around watching Black girls and Black women get into fights to defend themselves. And so, yeah, it actually does matter. Whatever we might have to say about like the American security state and all of that, which I think a more radical critique would have, 
the more basic part of me is like, black women's bodies built this empire. We reproduced enslaved children who did the capital and the backbreaking labor to produce American wealth. And we were never seen as worthy of protection. And so the idea that the heaviest resources of the state would be marshaled to protect the black woman who is potentially going to be in the number two position, it does matter. It's not everything, but it matters. It resets this imagery about black women as being too strong and invulnerable. And it says that we too can break and we too deserve for people to value our lives and our contributions and our minds um, and our political acumen in such a way that they would risk their very lives in order to protect it. And so, yes, I think that matters for this discourse about what it means to protect Black women and girls. Brittany Cooper, Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University, author of Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 